Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Our, uh, our scripture for our sermon this morning is going to be, we're starting a, a new series. I know I'll only be with you in week one of this series, and you might find it pop up from time to time, but we're in a book called the book of Proverbs. So it's kind of halfway through, a little bit after Psalms, if you find that one, um, Psalms, Proverbs, and we're going to be in chapter six this morning. Um, just a, a couple of quick verses. I'm going to read them to you. And yeah, you got the seven deadly sins heads up already. Good. Um, so the scripture says through, uh, this is Solomon. He was a king and he was a very wise king. So these are his words to us, to, not just to the folks he wrote to when he penned these words, but we believe they're God's words through the Holy Spirit to us, even here in St. Pete this morning. And they are life-changing and powerful. And so these are not the words of a man, but these are the words of God Almighty. Here now to his word. There are six things, even seven, that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is God's word. Um, I don't know if you are aware, but there's a dragon inside all of us. Maybe you didn't come to church thinking you were going to learn about your inner dragon, but I'm here to tell you it's insidious. It's hideous. It steals the happiness and the satisfaction from your heart that you were made to know. It's, in fact, been called the beast that's the chief of all the miseries in every nation, in every family since the world began. It's a beast of which no man is free. It's one that everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. And nearly, hardly any people would ever imagine they would be guilty of it themselves. There's another dragon No other dragon that makes man more unpopular. None that makes him more unconscious of it in himself. See, it's an essential vice, an utmost evil. Impurity, anger, and greed, and drunkenness, those kinds of things have been said mere flea bites in comparison to this dragon. And the devil himself became the devil because of this dragon. Indeed, it's the dragon that leads to every other vice, the complete antithesis of God himself in state of mind. I'm talking about a deadly sin. In Christendom, the church has, uh, since the beginning, decided and realized that some sins are not all equal to other sins. There are some that get down below and are actual root sins, things below the surface that bubble forth into many varieties of sins on the outside. And they called these deadly sins. These are what we will consider the first of this morning. 
It is those that are most destructive to our heart, but are deepest in there. And so we're going to look at the first of them, the robber of soul, uh, lifeblood, pride. I'm going to invite you with me to ask the Holy Spirit to tear open our hearts this morning, that he would uncover and expose the dragon within. Because if he does not, we can't get the remedy. We can't get the antithesis of the dragon's poison. See, there's two ways to live. There's a me-centered universe where others are used, where satisfaction uh, increasingly evades us. And then there's also another way. There's a a Christ-centered world where others are loved and where actual satisfaction grows more sweet and beholden and more delightful. It kind of has to do with what you love and what you hate. These things more than other things kind of shape our satisfaction buzzer. So what do you hate, church? What gets you riled up? Some of us, it's the other sports team. Some of us, it's our kids' uh, rival sports team. (laughs) And then we get more riled up. Um, Some of us, it, it, it is just silly things. We get really ticked when chalkboard fingernails go down. It just grates us. Can't stand it. Others of us find it much more um, unpredictable and suddenly it comes upon us and we can't really explain it, but we just don't like what we just had happen to us. And so then there are things that are, that are shaping us like our loves, those things that we admire and those things that stoke us in a positive way. Man, that gets our passion fueled. Some people, it's Apple computers. Man alive, you don't talk about a PC with that person or they'll tear your head off. It's all about the Mac. And then others of it, it's motorcycles. I knew a guy who, man, you you don't mess with the motorcycle concept. Maybe some people, it's the racing that's going on this coming weekend or cold brew coffee. I won't even go there. Um, But I want to ask you why this morning, church, why do we hate And why do we love? What is behind and underneath the things that get us going, whether positively or negatively? That's what I want to peel back this morning. And then I want to ask another layer. What does God hate? And what does God love? And why does he hate and love the things that he hates and loves? And so we're going to do that through three points this morning. We're going to first ponder the poison going to ponder the poison. I'll give them to you again if you don't get them all. We're going to then secondly consider the antidote. Consider the antidote. And lastly, we're going to feast on God's goodness. We're going to feast on his goodness. Um, So there are some things that make us stoked and alive. I wonder, does what make you alive this morning, church, the things you love the most? Is it actually bringing more life into your soul? Or is it stealing life from your inside? We have to ask that about the things we love. We also have to ask that about the things we hate. Is it taking our soul away from us? I could spend many hours seeking justice for ways others have wronged me. But I tell you, the poison it does in my heart and soul doesn't just stay here. It comes out upon many people along the way while I get that justice that I deserved. 
Friends, what we hate, what we seek in good and bad is coming from within. And there's a toll either way. It is either shaping us more alive or stealing from us and killing us. King Solomon says, hey, this is the case with the deadly sins. In our preferences, our virtues and our vices, there's fruit being identified. There are things on our trees that are suddenly being uh, woken up. And he says, below it, when you peel back the layers and you start saying, I'm scrolling the social media feed, I'm hitting some buttons, thumbs up. What gets my thumbs up? There's a reason those things get my thumbs up. What gets my heart? Man, I saved my heart for the special people, right? I'm not going to give that to everybody. I celebrate certain things. What gets me angry and sad emojis? I mean, these are parts of how we identify ourselves. So in our preferences, you find yourself ever drawn towards things like fault finding in others. Maybe in yourself. Maybe you notice a spirit of criticalness rising up at times in comparison. Or even a superficiality that, I'm going to be the best at the best at this really superficial thing just so I can claim it. I'm the top dog in it. Or defensiveness. Do you ever notice that bubble up? Man, that person got me and I'm going to get them back. These are the kinds of things that show us what's within. What about presumption spiritually? I can just do whatever I want and God's going to just, he's going to make it all go away if I just talk to him about it presumption that can show us what's in our heart attention seeking man if i just do this i know i'm going to get more likes more follows more feedback um we neglect others sometimes all of these show us what's in our heart and why what do these things tell us well proverbs says it's kind of the root of haughty eyes that's pride that's uh the thing that solomon's going from head to toe if you look at the list it's coming from the top of the body on down to the bottom of the body and he's kind of perceiving what um what makes a man unclean and what things are toxic to him and it starts at the top so he starts with what comes out of the mouth first and he says actually this is where it all starts friends This is the root. This is too much of me. Pride is where there's no room for not much else. Self over everything. It's, you know, Brian Regan, anyone ever heard of him? It's kind of what thrives on Captain Me Planet. It's, it's, it's when you um, don't see anybody else on the plane and you're trying to stuff that giant yak in the overhead bin. It's, it's that kind of thing. That's where you're forcing uh, everything into the deep, dark chasm of self. And it's hollow. And it doesn't satisfy. But we keep stuffing things in, hoping if we just get a little more praise, a little more respect, a little more admiration, a little more stuff, a little more security, a little more, you can fill in the blanks. A little more love. See, pride is the one that takes us from struggling to like those who are different from us. And it takes it deeper down and it messes with our self-promotion meter until we start to disdain anyone who's not like us so we feel better about ourselves. Unlike somebody to actually hating them. That's a big jump. Pride does that jump. It takes those who struggle to like those who are different and it it does that. And then it also takes those who struggle with with self-confidence. Hey, I just want to feel a little better about myself. And it morphs it into self-loathing or self-conceit. We, we, we see it come up in all these ways. How about you who like to feel important? I like to have importance. Well, pride takes it to be a mastering superego. 
that dominates all other things, at the expense of other people. Pride enters and there's a black, lifeless hole of destruction in its wake. It turns us even against ourselves and we don't even know it. That's the hideousness of pride. So we've seen kind of some of the poison. Maybe you've noticed some ways that you have poison in you this morning. Let's look now and consider the antidote. What does God hate? What does God hate? You see, it says in the verse a, a few chapters later, Proverbs eight thirteen, that God hates pride when it takes over a human heart. He then says a few uh, moments later, he hates arrogance, that superior attitude that chokes out other people and takes our heart and shrinks it actually because we try to one up and instead of getting a bigger heart, it gets smaller. That's this thing that pride does. It's when evil decimates an atomic bomb within the, the living heart and destroys it from the inside. That's pride. So at the basis, it's two things. It's refusing to depend on God. That's pride. I can do it without him. I'm good all by myself. And then it's attributing to yourself what is rightfully God's honor. I'm going to take his glory, just like the little moon, reflecting light, stealing from the sun. We do that all the time in big people ways as well as little people ways. It is one of those things that we are called to to investigate well why does the lord hate this thing called pride why is it so repulsive why does it conjure up such a strong response it's not very many things that you're reading through the scriptures that god says i hate over and over and over again if you page through the scriptures you will find pride is the source of much hatred of god well why is it well and at its essence, Psalm 10.4 tells us that it's, it's practical atheism. When you thumb your nose at God and say, I don't need you, I got this, in a sense, you're saying he doesn't really exist to you. He doesn't really exist in your universe. And that is a denial of your accountability to him because you say in your heart, there's no God when you do that. We don't think in those terms, but that's what it's doing. And so there's also a depravity that it shows that it's going to not just stay as pride. It's going to morph. It's going to keep bubbling out. We can't take that, that beach ball and throw it under the pool without it popping up. That's what pride is. It's going to keep coming up in all different directions. We may say, oh, I got it from this side. Whoop, there it goes again. I got it from over here. Whoop, there it goes again. That is how hideous pride is. You and I are not capable as human beings of slaying the pride monster. Never been done. I know we think we're smarter than every other human that's ever lived because we act like it, right? I'm going to go get it. Mm. but it doesn't work. And so that's what has led folks like um, C.S. Lewis, a, a late 20th century English literary professor who started out as an atheist, and, and I'm going to disprove that God even exists. Sounds like Psalm 10.4 was his motto. There is no God, I'll prove it. And so then he goes, and along the way, guess what he does? I can't deny Jesus. 
God opens his eyes to see that there is a God. And not only that, but it's the person of Jesus that has come and delivered him from pride. And so he wrote about this and he says in, in, in many of his writings, but in mere Christianity in particular, it's kind of essence of Christianity is what he boiled it down to. He said pride is that essential vice. It's an utmost evil. Remember, he called it, and I quoted from him without telling you earlier, but now I'm telling you. So you're not going to get me for plagiarism. He said it's more flea bites in comparison to all the other sins. That was C.S. Lewis that said that. He was telling us that there is something that made the devil turn into the monster that he is today. It's what took the worship leader from heaven and made him think he was better than the God he was worshiping. And he took some angels and with him and they all became devils. This is the thing that we fight against like a beach ball under the water with our bare fists. It doesn't work. If Satan was taken as an archangel of glorious, splendorous, beautiful light. He was the most beautiful angel in heaven. If he was morphed into the ugliest and hideous creature of darkness, who are you and I to think we can bare fist it, wrestle it down? So we find ourselves maybe, uh, you know, I, I, I'm okay, actually. I'm not that good, but, but I'm kind of revolted by this behavior and this person over here. Um, and then I find out along the way, somebody close to me pointed out, oh, actually, you're kind of guilty of the same thing. <laughs> Ever done that? I hated in them, but I got a pass. I'm good. I'm okay. I got a good reason for that thing that I hated in them. We're all able. What about speeding? Anyone ever really offended by other people's speech? Slow down. You're going through a neighborhood. Then we turn in the car and we do the same thing. It's convenient. What about gossip? How big is your gossip meter when you're telling the, the tales? We're quick to spot it in others sometimes. Slander. Oh, no, their reputation deserved to be bashed. They made a lot of foolish choices. Let me tell everybody about it. Do we have a understanding that all of these are about pride? They reveal to us the things we tend to love or the things we tend to hate. They get us stoked up for good or bad. And so there's a honesty we have to kind of come to the text of god this morning through the holy spirit and i pray you're kind of starting to say i kind of do that sometimes i can't get away from that one i don't like to think i do but i do and if you don't think you do then just ask some of your family they might remind you that you do Um, or friends if they're good friends they'll tell you the reality and and so what do we do when we find that we've got this hideous thing living inside our hearts what do we do? We can't push it down beneath the pool so long. We get out, run out of strength. I wonder if there would be a reason we'd be beckoned by the Spirit of God this morning, maybe even, to consider with God the hideousness of this thing and let our love for Him draw us in to forsaking that which we can't on our own. And let his love for us beckon us in. You see, pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16 says. A haughty spirit before a fall. Sooner or later, this volleyball can't be kept under the water. It's going to pop up. And so Matthew says, hey, your heavenly father, if you as earthly fathers know how to get good gifts, hey, your, your sons and daughters ask you for food and you give them a loaf of bread and a fish. You give them 
Maybe it's, you know, little little fish crackers. But you give them something to eat, right? You're not going to give them a rock. Here, go munch on that, son. That would not be very loving. Okay, earthly dads and moms, we know how to love and give good gifts to our kids. How much more? A heavenly father who loves and cares for our souls. How much more would he not give us good gifts and good food? And so there's an assumption this morning. If God is an all-knowing creator and he's the God of the Bible who's good, a good daddy, a better daddy or a mommy than we've ever known or imagined or even have a category for, if he desires to give good gifts to his creatures, what good things might pride be robbing our hearts of? What good things does he want to put there instead? If he says, I hate this thing, it's not something to mess with and just kind of sort of deal with and sort of kind of ignore most of the time. If God says, I hate it, what would he want his children to know as good in its place? What is he trying to root deep within that would grow and flourish instead of tearing us apart? That is where we come to the Lord Jesus this morning. Could it be that by putting off our selfishness through lots and lots of confession, like we did this morning, I have, I have been selfish again, Lord. I have been hideously selfish. I have wanted what I wanted when I wanted, and I got mad when the universe didn't go according to my drumbeat. And I took it out on the people around me, maybe even on the walk or the drive here this morning. We do this so easily. Well, how do we overcome that kind of a hideous thing? Well, it, it starts, I believe, our, our, our scripture invites us to consider what God loves and let our affections be stirred by a greater passion, a greater love, a greater delight than those things we try to push down and abolish. And let that love eclipse the lesser glories that pride beckons us to. That's what I'm going to take the next couple of seconds to unpack. What does God love, church? He, he delights in what the scripture says. The antidote is humility. Humility. It's not when we beat ourselves up like we may um, have imagined. It's not being a wimpy little pushover in the corner. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean whatever goes. We have kind of this like, subhuman like servant kind of role like it's not being a no person it does not mean dying to all parts of your humanness it doesn't mean being um being a rug and so what does it mean well the scriptures give us a reminder isaiah 66 the prophet tells hey this is the god of heaven where he says heaven's my throne the earth is my footstool but this is the one to whom i look I see somebody, a kind of a person, he who is humble, someone who's contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Maybe some of us tremble when tax day is coming and we got to pay up. But how many of us actually tremble at the God of the universe's words? These are eternal words of life. They can stoke our fires forever. Isaiah 57 says, hey, uh, there's, a, there's a, a God who's high and lifted up and he's um, inhabited eternity. His name is holy. And he says, I dwell with high and holy places. And also, he's not just up in heaven, church. He's also with him who's of a contrite and lowly spirit. 
to revive his spirit, the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. He who is is humble because he recognizes, wow, I don't have it all together. I kind of like to pretend I do, but I ain't got it together. And it's okay to tell God that because he even says in James 6 that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord in verse 10 of chapter 4, James says, and he will exalt you. It's not a death forever. It's not a, a let me slay myself and be a martyr for Jesus. It's let the Spirit of God put us in our place to remind us that we need a Savior. We can't deal with our sin. We are broken to the core. We've got rotten poison that we can't take and get the antibody to. There's no cure on a human level. We are desperate for Jesus. you got to do it. I can't, Jesus. I need your grace. I need you to root it out. And so God delights, the scripture says, in truth in our hearts. You delight in truth, Psalm 51, in the inward being. You have stored up, I've stored up my, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's a, a truth-filled heart that might deliver us from this grasp of pride. And so we lean into God when he wants to expose and root out that dragon. First Corinthians 4 says, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And, and, and if everything you have is from God, why do you boast as if you did it yourself? Some of you may remember the basketball player Shaquille O'Neal back when I was still watching basketball as a, as a youngster. He, you know, he's that seven foot over seven foot tall guy and he could just kind of throw his hand up and an over 11 foot hand reach. I mean, that's just, that's insane on a 10 foot basketball. He doesn't even have to jump. Boop. Yet, what did he do every single time? He strutted his stuff, man. Look at me. Woo. Woo. I just was born, man. Look at how good I am for being born. He had no part in that. But don't we do that with God's glory? The gifts he's given us, the things he's made, all of them, the scripture says, come from him. And why do you boast as if it were not a gift? As if you earned it? Humble says, I didn't do anything to get this gift. God, you made me a musician. God, you made me a banker. God, you made me to love uh, technology. God, you... I don't have any part. I used the gifts, developed them, and grew them, but you planted them in me. Thank you. Humility says, let me use these gifts for you and not just to make a name for myself. It also invites us that we would be not just boasting about self-made humanity. How many of us really is? self-made. When we do that, we neglect that God has given us a rightful copyright and we owe him royalties because he gave us every gift we ever had that we used. Guys, it's not our matter. Did you form yourself from the dust of the earth? We didn't do any of that. Were you there, Job says, when God formed the earth um, and he's arguing with God that he's really got something on him? How can you give me this suffering? And no, we weren't there. Okay, so we're not self-made. So how do we trust then a God who would love us enough to actually tell us the truth about ourselves? I just think about that. Could you, let's reverse it. Could you and I ever trust a God who didn't tell us the truth about us? 
If God says you're good, where would, be, where would we be left? What hope would we have? We know, we know, deep down, we are not good. We wake up in the middle of the night terrified sometimes in a sweat over things. We know we are gripped by many things that are not godly. We know we are not like Jesus fully. We don't even need the scriptures to tell us. The scripture says, you just look at the beauty of creation and you know you don't measure up to the greatness of it. You know God's there and you're not him. We know this. So if we know this, let's beckon into the God who loves us enough to say, it's okay. You're not good. You're not holy. You're not righteous. You're not, you need me. That's good. We can trust him when he tells us that. And so let's lean into him. All have really sinned. No one is good. We all fall short of God's glory like we confessed. It's good that we say that because the penalty we would reserve for treason against the one true king would, would, would not satisfy um, if, if we didn't acknowledge there's a poison deep within us. God, we owe him our life. We deserve death and separation forever. Yet, Here's the good news. Our God in the person of Jesus Christ, he delights to take you and I when we come to him as family joined by faith, simple trust. I believe Jesus, what you did on the cross, your perfect life and your, your, your atoning death for, for brokenness and sinfulness and your perfect resurrection for conquering all sin and death forever. I believe what you did then was for me. When we unite ourselves to Jesus simply by trusting that his work was for us, God takes in Jesus and he extracts the poison and he puts it in the person of his son and he nails him to the cross and he destroys him literally unto nothing because of his great love for us. He is a good father. He doesn't just tell us you're messed up and full of pride, church. He says, I am going to take that poison out myself and I'm going to put it on my own son. Because I love you enough to not leave you in that mess. And you say, well, why then do I still struggle with the remnants of this? Well, there's an enemy that is the father of lies. He would not, like we sang, he would not want us to sing that nothing can take away who we really are. He would want us to believe, no, that bad thing we did, we are no longer one of his family. God's family. You can't be loved by God. You did that thing over there. All day long, we're told messages that are not who we really are by things we do or leave undone. But our God invites us together, church, today to remind us in Jesus who we really are. We are more loved than we could imagine. All of our deadly treason was taken against heaven and it was put on Jesus. And so we have a, 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 a a pride-filled unloveliness that God who delights in mercy is rich. He says, while we were still weak, at the right time in Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I had no hope without that. Have you rejoiced in that today? Because it makes you have to admit you're weak, church. That though we are great, skilled folk at many good work that we do all through the week. It's glorious the things that God's people on mission can accomplish for him in one week. I'm looking at a kaleidoscopic 
mix of God's glory right now. And it's amazing. But you and I can't save ourselves. Because no matter our perfect level of perfectionist, we won't measure up to perfect. So how do you slay that pride dragon? How do you learn to see yourself through the Father's gaze as delighted? It's learning to feast, as we're going to do in a few minutes. Feast, friends. That's point three. Feast on God's favor. Look honestly at the life-stealing fruit of pride and confront it. It robs us of satisfaction. It is a lie from the pit that we can do it on our own. We think we're um, just kind of going around and, and playing with little bits of, 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 of fire, but we're, we're, we're full of anxious toil, and, and it's needless, and it's meaningless, and we have purpose and meaning, and we're meant to be beckoned. We're meant to be beckoned, church. The spiritual cancer that you and I face in pride, it's real. But church, don't leave today without knowing what is more real than your sin. Jesus Christ in his grace. Is he enough? His father put him on the cross and said it is finished. Yes, he's enough. The only one who could be your judge calls you friend when you're united to Jesus because it's done, church. You don't have to bear your cross anymore. You don't have to carry the weight and try to make up and atone for what's lacking. But you have to be broken. You have to lean in that you have been robbed and you believe robbery will bring you great riches and it just won't. The lie needs to be renounced every day so that we might look on the life-giving fruit of humility. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, Paul says. It's the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is our daily food, church, we will we will boast no more of any vain glory we knew before. And when we do, the love of Christ will warm our hearts anew. Come to Jesus, friends. This day is a place of great hope. The monster that you've been battling in your heart, God slain it. It is not the most true thing about you if you know Jesus Christ. I need to be reminded of that today. Maybe you do too. The, the, the life of Jesus really was perfect. He measured up in all the ways we never could. The death of Jesus really was actually accomplishing satisfaction for our sin debt. And his life of resurrection was actually what none of us could do on our own to beat sin and death and shame and guilt forever. He is real and he is more real than your sin today. More real than that hideous dragon of pride. Have you pondered today your heart's poison of pride? Have you considered yet Christ as your antidote? And have you feasted upon the satisfaction of his life in Jesus? That there is a death and a life and the satisfaction of resurrection that Jesus would be he who would teach you to be humble.
You see the man, Christ Jesus, on the cross. He said to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to consider others more significant than yourselves. And then he took the form of a servant. He emptied himself. And he, and, he, and he became nothing. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2. The record of your Savior is perfect. Are you trusting it today? I invite you to pray with me now about something you've heard. Lord Jesus, 